From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiotakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. You're standing in the courtyard of the Midnight Mission Shelter in the heart of Skid Row with the mission's chief communications officer, Georgia Berkovich. For weeks, she says her organization has been fielding calls and emails from people who want to volunteer this holiday season. We really get slammed, like starting November 1st, we will end up having to turn away hundreds. Sounds like a good problem to have, right? But it's also a challenge managing the intense interest this time of year. During the holidays, we just know, basically, we, we work every day, all day, and we do the best we can to accommodate everyone, but, you know, we have a pretty small staff. So should you still try to get involved? If you'd like to help your unhoused neighbors, what should you know? KCRW's Anna Scott has the story. The Midnight Mission isn't the only Skid Row organization that gets a lot of people wanting to help this time of year. The neighborhood known as the epicenter of L.A.'s homelessness crisis always draws big crowds and often high-profile faces to serve meals or hand out clothes or toys in November and December, especially on Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, and Easter. Andy Bales runs the Union Rescue Mission. We see a skyrocketing interest Early on, people sign up, and we see it steady up until the event. And then the week of the event, people are still trying to get in. And even hours before the event, people decide that's what they want to do and try to get in. And our volunteer coordinator uh, had to finally say no to somebody because we just were packed. Everyone you're hearing from here says they're grateful for the attention. They want you to call, they want you to email, and to get involved. But the sheer volume of interest can be overwhelming. Berkovich from the Midnight Mission says this time of year is a balancing act. Our priority is to the people we serve. And sometimes when we have too many volunteers, it impedes our service to our community. And... You know, we'll have people say, please, please, I know you're full, but I just want to volunteer so badly. And then they come and they're like, there was nothing for me to do. And then they have a terrible experience. So it's a fine line to walk because we are so grateful for our volunteers. We cannot do what we do without volunteers, period. It's a fine line that's not unique to homeless service organizations. Many nonprofits have certain times of year when interest swells, and it can either be a big hassle or a huge asset. That's according to Efrain Escobedo, president and CEO of the Center for Nonprofit Management. He has advice for organizations struggling with how to turn seasonal interest into year-round support. I would say, number one, get everybody's name, phone number, and email. <laughs> And number two is be very open about whether you can handle the need or not, because building that connection and building the base of people that you can reach out to is important. A volunteer today can be a donor tomorrow. That's the thinking at the Los Angeles Mission, where Mayor Karen Bass handed out food on Thanksgiving Day. There, President and CEO Troy Vaughn says his colleagues compiled databases of people who want to donate time, especially now when the numbers are big. And many of them come back. And what we're doing here in Los Angeles Mission, we're assessing different kind of in-kind value that volunteers bring. 
in-kind value, meaning what skills or connections do you have that might enhance the organization's services all year round? For example, if people have a legal background, if they're an attorney or they work in the legal field, we have a pro bono legal clinic here on site. And so we offer those opportunities for professionals that want to come in and do pro bono work, and oftentimes they take advantage of it. The Midnight Mission has a similar strategy. Berkovich says they try not to give people hard no's if the holiday events they want to serve at hit capacity. Instead, they try to find them other opportunities. Berkovich herself first got involved with the mission as a volunteer, years ago when she was in early addiction recovery. So I started volunteering in 1993 when I hit bottom and got sober, and it was uh, being homeless was one of my greatest fears, and so this was sort of a way to kind of face that and be of service. That service evolved from helping with meals to now a full-time job as the organization's chief spokesperson. That's unusual, but her advice to would-be volunteers is make the call and don't be discouraged if the specific event you're interested in is full, because there are a lot of ways to get involved that you might not have thought of. We had a school teacher who used to come in the whole month of December. He would use all of his vacation time and he'd set up a table in our lobby and he'd do Christmas cards for people in our community. He would write the Christmas cards out for them, for them to send a card to their family. And you think about like, so what's the big deal with that? But for I, I know with one of the people that he did that for, it was the first time as their family had heard from them in nine years. And if you don't end up volunteering during the holidays, don't forget there's another 10 months besides November and December. We have volunteer opportunities every day of the year, 365 days a year. We serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We need volunteers to help us with each shift. We need 20 to 30 per meal shift. We have an education center. You can volunteer with that. We have music and art programs. So if you're a musician, you can come and play for our community. Berkovich says if you feel passionate about something, they'll help you find a way to contribute whenever you have time during the year. For KCRW, I'm Anna Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Moving on now with Greater L.A. from KCRW. And as you just heard, there are a lot of needs here in Los Angeles, and not just during the holiday season, but all year long. Knowing where to start as a volunteer can feel like a daunting task. Thankfully, there's one organization that's dedicated itself to help. You know, my mother used to say, always look for the helpers. Anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Mutual Aid LA was founded back in 2020. It actually helps helpers by compiling a monthly dispatch and calendar It's filled with events, calls for supplies, and volunteer opportunities for all kinds of groups doing good all across greater Los Angeles. Whether you prefer making homemade meals or doling out hygiene kits or distributing art supplies, there is something in this guide for you. And Sarah Ginsberg is an organizer on the ground here in L.A., and Sarah's here to tell us more about it. Hi, Sarah. 
Hi, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Happy holidays to you, by the way. Thank you so much, and to you too. Before we dive into how to get involved, sort of tell us about how Mutual Aid LA got started. Mutual Aid LA was started early in the pandemic uh, as a response, an emergency response to issues in Los Angeles that were exacerbated by the pandemic. So we were sanitizing groceries when we thought that COVID was spreadable by uh, surface. Uh, We were giving direct cash assistance, which is something we still do. We were helping people find resources, you know, online doing peer support. You know, that's not really sustainable for the number of volunteers we have now as people went back to work. And since then, we've kind of evolved to be uh, this network, a hub, a junction uh, where people can plug in, you know, find out what other groups are out there and, you know, what's in their area of interest, whereas, you know, what's near them in their neighborhood, um, if they need resources, uh, it, other groups need to know about each other. I think sometimes there's this disconnect and LA is so huge. So what we're really trying to do is keep everybody connected and in that way sustain this greater movement. I mean, yeah, let's expound on that just a little bit, because you keep mentioning and getting back to the point that L.A. is so big, right? And the problems Mm -hmm. in L.A. can seem daunting. Like, how do you try and hone in on that and whittle it down to, all right, one person can make a big difference by doing this or that person can do that? I think that. It's a common problem for people to look at a place like L.A. and feel overwhelmed, you know, like you said, and maybe even throw their hands up and call it hopeless. But when you join a group, a a mutual aid group, you connect, you're there for each other. You kind of eventually like build this family and the work becomes joyful. As bleak as it can be, it can also be joyful. But in terms of finding something that clicks with you, something that you can also find joy in doing, knowing that all of these issues are interconnected. There, There's people that are concerned about the environment. There's environmental racism to think about and who is affected by climate change first and most. So it's it's about identifying what your skill set is or what's in your toolbox. And the, you know, only thing that's required is like a willingness to learn and show up. Mutual Aid is all about understanding that everybody is of equal value and not all um, wealth looks like uh, funds. It can also be a wealth of um, people or let's say you have a truck. That's a resource that you can offer. Uh, it's, let's say you love children. Childcare is something that you could offer. So it's like connecting. It's connecting specific needs to specific assets, right, that people have. One of the things that y'all do is this monthly guide, right, as as well as an online calendar. And this puts all of these opportunities, again, the needs meeting the assets, those folks that can help with whatever they can bring to the table. That's all in one place, right? Correct. Yeah, it's I was doing social the Instagram for Mutual Aid LA for a while, and I still do it. And I was seeing all these groups and all these different call outs for things needed or resources offered. And it just made me think like there's really no excuse, even though it's overwhelming, there's not really an excuse to not do something. And so to put it all in one place with it's very clear and, you know, the location is listed, the times are listed, uh, there's tags based on if you have time, money or items to offer. And then if you're looking for resources, if you need items, services or food. Um, And so just putting it in this the dispatch that we put out monthly uh, seemed to be effective and 
another project we have that we're working on is putting that in a, all the information in a directory, a, an online database that's, you know, public facing that people can access. So there'd be just this updated dispatch and there'd also be this kind of database that, that people could access all the time. And what, what kind of advice would you give to someone if you're listening right now and you're thinking to yourself, this is so much of a problem. You know, there's so many things that are wrong and I, I really want to help, but I don't know where to start. What do you say? I would say getting involved in specifically a mutual aid effort or project is one of the most life-giving, it is the most life-giving thing, choice you can make. And it's something that is lifelong. And everybody, understand that everybody has has something to offer and will at some point need aid. And leaning on each other, breaking down that individualistic way of living that we've you know come to go by and knowing that you're really coming to understand what community is, not just the buzzword community, but what community is. And yeah, I just think that um, as bleak as things can be, I am getting this opportunity to have intergenerational relationships and learn so much about this city in a very uh, genuine way and be be a support to it too. As I'm someone that's not from here, I don't want to just extract. I want to take care of my neighbors. Sarah Ginsberg, organizer with Mutual Aid LA. By the way, you can find a link to their dispatch and info about all the organizations that she mentioned at our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. Sarah, again, happy holidays. Thanks for all you do. Oh, thank you so much for, uh, for having me on here. Coming up, comedy when things going on in the world are really serious. How Paula Poundstone brings her observations to the audience and talks with them for the ride. It's yours after this short break. More now of Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. In telling a story about trying to park in California, you probably will recognize this voice. One time I was working a nightclub here and I had to park like way far away. And I'm walking to the club and I go by a garage door with one of those signs, don't even think about parking here. <laughs> like people aren't tense enough about the parking thing. Somebody's got to put some smart ass sign up on their door, don't even think about parking here. I'll tell you what, I stood right there and thought about it. <laughs> I did. Comedian Paula Poundstone has been on stage and at the microphone for more than four decades making observations about life and all the chaos that goes along with it. Through ups and downs and insides and outs, Poundstone found her way into the public radio realm as panelist and contributor to NPR's comedy show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She not only lives in L.A., she's playing a couple of shows around SoCal as well at the Carpenter Performing Arts Center in Long Beach this weekend on Saturday and at the Magnolia down in El Cajon on the 22nd. Paula Poundstone, welcome. Thank you so much, Steve. It's lovely um, to be here, even though I'm not there. And then it turns out that this, I could have been in the studio that's not that far away, but I didn't know that. Alas, that's how life goes sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah. The chaos Does of it, life. Yeah, so you know what, listeners, Steve said, I can come by any time, which, you know, those are the kind of words yeah. that, uh, you know, when Steve has his performance review, yeah. that's going to come up. It's going to come up. It yeah. will come up in the performance review, yeah. I assure you. Yes. And I'll be in the other room. 
And, 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 and his employer will be saying, you know, you told her she could come by any time. And, and she's here like every day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, brought your cookies, Steve. Yeah. Hey, Steve, thought we could go for coffee. <laughs> hey, Steve, listen, I'm having some problems at home. And I was wondering, yeah, you're going to regret ever yeah. inviting you to the radio station. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, I read a social science book years ago that uh, said there was a town in Pennsylvania somewhere that they found people lived in unusually long, uh, just on average, had unusually long lifespans. And they, it really attracted you know, medical professionals and people researching the topic uh, because it was extraordinary how many people there lived to be like, you know, in their hundreds. Uh, and they found that the, it was a small town, but they found that the community largely were migrants from, um, had immigrated from uh, uh, another town in Italy. And so they thought, well, maybe it's the food they eat. Well, no, Italian food is not particularly good for you. Um, uh, and no, it wasn't that. Uh, they thought, well, it's a hilly town. Maybe the people walk a lot. That's it. So they walk. No, no, it wasn't that. You know what they finally settled on? What was it? People stopped by. They stopped by for a cuppa. Company. They, Company. They stopped by. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when I was growing up, my mother was one of the most unhappy uh, people I've ever known. And uh, and she would be in bed all day. But I remember specifically Mrs. Hollis, but other people did this too. Other women did this too, which is, you know, they, they come by the house. They, they, they knock on the door. If it's unlocked, they come in and they say, oh, you know, you got some coffee. You, you want to put a pot of coffee on? And then my mother would come out, come downstairs and sit and talk. And in minutes, you'd hear them roaring with laughter. And she would be improved for a while as a result. You know, that thing that people do. Uh, and yet I think about it now. I think, geez, if somebody stopped by here, I would just be like, you know what? I, who the hell is that at the door? Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> why do we, like, why do we do that? Why are we like that today? Because, I mean, I think you're not alone. A lot of folks are like that. Well, I think some of it is just that we're scheduled. You know, my mother didn't have a really intense schedule, whereas I, uh, you, you, you know, everything I do when my kids were young, um, we, I mean, I would write the schedule out the night before because it was like brutal and it had to be time to the minute. Um, yeah. Anyways, I think that's it. I think that we have more intense schedules than we used to have. Um, the, the world feels like such a i don't know that we're in such a crazy place right now i mean it's always look there's been bad stuff that's happened through you know the course of human history uh, but i wonder as a comedian how does that affect your job because you're trying to be funny and i know it is a real comedic genre like observational humor right and even even the bad stuff you're observing right um i'll tell you there's about a million factors that go into having a great night on stage. And I like to think I have a lot of great nights on stage because I, I, a lot of those million factors come together. Sometimes they don't. But I think one of the things that's happening now is that people, sometimes the laughter is like explosive from just the relief, I think. Because I do think we're all walking around expecting another very large shoe to drop and hit us on the head. Um, and so I think there's a tremendous amount of tension. And so when you get together in a room and you can laugh about stuff, you know, it's one of the things that nature gave us to um, cope with stress. Uh, and so it is a coping mechanism. It's a, an effective coping mechanism. 
And, you know, one of the things that happened during the stay-at-home order, um, in, in my experience, the, the theaters that I work in were closed for 15 months. So I did not work in theaters how I used to for 15 months. And I also was not an audience member for 15 months. And I think this experience is something that we've really taken for granted all this time. And I, by the way, was and am totally in support of the shutdown. I think it was the right thing to do under the circumstances. But we lost a lot of things. And one of the things was that experience of sitting with strangers, experiencing a show of some sort, be it a concert, a play, something where you have shared emotional reaction to that thing. I think what it does is it makes you feel human. Is it is it hard? Like if you're doing a bigger show, like you're you're playing Long Beach this weekend, and and there, you know, if you've got hundreds or thousands, well, I'm not of people, on the beach. Is that what you were thinking? That I was going to be out no. on the Long you, Beach. You could you could be on yeah. the Long Beach if you wanted yeah. to, but if you're in an auditorium, right, and you got hundreds or a couple thousand people or whatever, and and you use the crowd because that's what you do, right? You do a lot of crowd work in your in your act, part. right? That's a fun it's really part. the fun part. How do you do that with a big crowd? Oh, it's not a problem at all. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, it's not that big a crowd. It's not, you know, I mean, I could see Taylor Swift, uh, you know, having a hard time <laughs> de dedicating a song to the person in the back. Um, I, uh, it's not that big a crowd. So, you know, I, sometimes somebody will have a reaction to so it's something that I say or something and say there, um, you know, I hear like, um, a moaning sound when I made a joke or something, and I hear it coming from you know the the, 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 the this side of the audience. Several row. I say, hey, well, you know who was uh, who said that? And usually the audience will rat on one another. They'll point behind them because yeah, was that guy back there? And uh, you know, and, and if they say something in response to what I'm saying, I generally repeat what they're saying so that everybody heard it. And uh, yeah. I, but the venues I work are just, they're not enormous. Um, in fact, it's, uh, it's a little Goldilocks. It's really mostly just right. Just right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so much fun. You know, just so much fun. That is my favorite part of the night is just talking to the audience. I do the time-honored, where are you from? What do you do for a living? And in this way, little biographies kind of emerge, and I use that from which to set my sails. So... You know, people say, well, what are you, you know, what are you going to do? I, I don't really know. I talk about, you know, they, they send me in a particular direction is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, it could be that I, I am in my head, I'm pawing through 40 something years of material to find the thing <laughs> that relates to what the person said. Um, and it's uh, even more likely that my response to what the person says to me is something that's unique to just that night and will never be repeated again because, uh, you know, the old memory isn't what it used to be. Well, if you want to hear what Paula Poundstone has to say on the fly in front of an audience, you'll get a chance this weekend in Long Beach at the Carpenter Performing Arts Center this Saturday and then in Al Cajon on the 22nd at the Magnolia more on that, by the way, at our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. Paula Poundstone, straight out of Santa Monica. <laughs> the mean streets. Happy holidays to you. Thank you so much, Paula. Thanks very much. Well, Steve, uh, look for me to be caroling outside your door very soon. <laughs> we'll have some eggnog for you right here, okay? Appreciate it. 
<laughs> eggnog for everybody. That's going to do it for us this evening. Tomorrow at this time, it's The Business, and a couple of Tony-winning producers talk about their streaming platform, Broadway HD, and waitress star Sarah Bareilles and producer Jesse Nelson talk about what went into bringing their hit musical to the big screen. That's tomorrow on The Business. Next week on GLA, how L.A. restaurants are playing a diplomatic, if delicious, role in global affairs, bringing people together, and how a middle school compost project is helping kids face an environmental uncertainty. That's next week on Greater LA. Online, anytime, by the way, kcrw.com slash GLA. Tell us how you're doing. Share a story idea with us. Grab the podcast so you can get the show on the go. It's all there at kcrw.com slash GLA. And grab that podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, John Meek, Sue Margulies, Phil Richards, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordall all helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chutakis. Have a great night. 